I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A wave of optimism over the imminent delivery of vaccines has turned to fear. For the first time seeing what's happening in London, I felt genuine fear for what the next few weeks might bring. The National Health Service is now in a race against time to vaccinate the vulnerable. But the virus has a head start. People need to understand that the new variant was an inevitable product of what was happening in this country. What people have to realise is the only way to control this is to do it properly, 24-7, as if you have the virus yourself. Is the NHS near breaking point? And what would that look like? If the worst of the pandemic is still to come, how will the doctors and nurses on the front line cope with the pressure? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, is the NHS ready for the toughest moment in its history? A warning from all four chief medical officers that the health services are at risk of being overwhelmed within three weeks. The next few weeks are going to be the worst weeks of this pandemic. London hospitals are under extreme pressure. This whole area will become a red zone. Things are now getting critical. This is going to be a significant crisis for the NHS unless we take evasive action. London has been declared as having a major incident. The emergency services can't cope. The virus is out of control. One out of 30 Londoners now has this virus, but in some parts of London, it's one out of 20. Our brilliant firefighters and are driving some ambulances. We need to really double down. This is everybody's problem. Is this the moment of crisis? Is the worst of the pandemic about to hit the NHS? Over the past few days, we've been talking to NHS doctors and managers at hospitals across England, and they all tell us the same thing. They're frightened of what's coming. Their fears are compounded by exhaustion. Ten long months of fighting the pandemic have taken a gruelling toll, just as the virus has become even more contagious. Later in this episode, we'll hear from NHS staff firsthand. 
people are really worried. Something I hear quite a lot is people saying, you know, I've worked in the NHS for decades and I've never known a winter like this. Kat Lay is the Times health editor. She's been speaking to NHS staff throughout the pandemic, but in recent weeks, the tone of those conversations has changed. It's not uncommon to hear someone's voice breaking when they're talking to me. And these are people who are professional spokespeople for one of the royal colleges or you know a branch of medicine. But then they talk about a colleague who's died from coronavirus or a very difficult shift that perhaps they've just finished when they've lost a lot of patients. Sometimes they do sound like they're on the verge of tears because it is very difficult at the moment. And that's the spokespeople. I mean, that does give you a sense of what's happening within the NHS, within ICU wards and the people who are having to be on the front line. Yes, I mean, what people tell me is the atmosphere is quite calm. It's very professional. They're now used to dealing with these very sick patients, but it's the scale that is distressing. On Friday evening in London, one respiratory consultant has just arrived home after his shift. He's asked us not to use his name so that he can be frank about the difficulties his hospital is facing. The pressures are, are immense. The numbers coming in are huge, bigger than we had the first time round. The hospital is already full. We're taking desperate measures to try and get people out of hospital, perhaps earlier than we normally would. We are stretching the hospital oxygen supply in ways that it was never designed for. We are at the limits of what we can do in terms of staffing, uh, the limits in terms of beds. It's just unbelievable pressure. I mean, talk me through your shift today. What have you encountered? It's just sort of constantly being in three places at once and each of those places being really stressful. So in the morning we were on the ward seeing how the patients had done. We lost a patient overnight. We had new positive tests on our ward. All of the consultants are on the shop floor at the moment. At the same time, we're trying to draw up guidelines to support earlier discharging than we might already do along the lines of the WHO guidelines, which are actually designed for resource-poor developing countries. Really? When did they sort of become normal? Uh, probably about the last 10 days where we've, we've really been stretched. It sounds like your, your day is pretty relentless. Yeah, I think, I think that's how everyone would describe it. It's just non-stop firefighting, basically. As the respiratory consultant is heading home, a few miles away, Dr Pushbo Barbal Hussain is getting ready to start her night shift at another South London hospital. During my night on calls, I'm one of the few doctors that's running around the whole hospital trying to sort everybody out, basically. Dr Hussain works in a COVID ward, the ward that takes in the patients who come in from A&E and need oxygen and medicine. Now, you're actually on night shifts this week, and it's really kind of you to have taken time out to talk to us. How was it last night? Oh, uh, night shifts these days are particularly difficult. We just have so many COVID patients at the moment, and they are all so very sick. Describe the scene for our listeners. You know, if, if we'd been there with you, following you around, what would we have seen and what would we have heard? 
if you were to follow me around, you would definitely hear my pager bleeping nonstop one after the other. I would get different calls from different wards telling me how patients' oxygen levels are very low and I need to go and review them. You would see that I was being pulled from multiple directions. We have to prioritize who do we see first and yeah, it's quite difficult. And what does it look like now in the ward? Right now, what we are seeing is just lots and lots of sick patients coming in. The first wave, we thought that, you know, we've seen, never seen like it and it can't get worse. But then now we're here. There are some 800 new cases coming into London hospitals every day. Enough to fill one of the capital's major hospitals every 24 hours. On Friday, the Mayor of London declared a major incident. But what does that actually mean in practice? Um, if I'm honest, I've got absolutely no idea. I don't know how declaring a major incident can make any difference to what we're doing in hospital. We've been behaving like this as a major incident for weeks and months. I don't know if it mobilises more resources for us. I have no idea. I suspect partly it's to make sure the public are fully aware of what's going on and, and how serious this is. It, it doesn't give us another ward of beds to use. It doesn't give us more oxygen. It doesn't give us more staff that I'm aware of, but we'll have to see how it plays out. Do you need any of those things? <laughs> we need all of those things. If the Nightingale was actually usable for what it was designed for, that would be great. If, you know, more staff would be the key. The new variant of the virus has had a major impact, but staff are also bracing themselves for the shockwave caused by household mixing over Christmas. It is my strong and sincere hope that we will be able to review the outstanding restrictions and allow a more significant return to normality, possibly in time for Christmas. As Christmas looms, so does the prospect of a third wave. Families are to be allowed to reunite. And we're now into a situation where across the country as a whole, uh, roughly one in 50 people have got the virus. It's at its worst at the moment in London. That's the Times health editor, Kat Lay again. But also places like the east of England, the southeast, and now we're hearing about the Midlands as well. The volume of patients has been such that they've had to reopen what they call surge capacity. So some hospitals have turned outpatient areas into wards. But even with that, they are struggling. So we've heard about things like oxygen shortages in some hospitals, the hospital pipe systems aren't set up to deal with this many patients at once. Staff have been redeployed at the Royal London Hospital in Whitechapel, which is just down the road from me. Surgeons are doing nursing shifts, uh, working as healthcare assistants. Wow. I mean, that sounds extraordinary. It's sort of all hands on deck. But in terms of the shortages, I mean, are people getting the sort of care they need or are they getting everything they could get? You know, you talked about oxygen shortages. How does that play out? for the staff delivering the care. A phrase they use quite a lot is the idea, they call it moral injury. The ethical dilemma or the, the potential mental health harm for healthcare professionals who find they can't give care of the quality that they would like. 
they are doing things to mitigate it. So if there are insufficient intensive care beds in one hospital, patients might be transferred to another nearby hospital, which is fine up to a point until all the hospitals start getting full. We've been hearing a lot recently about the possibility that the NHS could soon be overwhelmed. In practical terms, I mean, what, what would that look like? The worry is that we start to see the scenes that we saw from Italy in April. They're fighting a war here and they're losing. People who, in normal circumstances, might be given that chance in an intensive care unit. They no longer get that chance. This isn't a ward, this is a waiting room. Wherever you go, people are on gurneys, in corridors, in meeting rooms, they're everywhere. As well as being overwhelmed by COVID, the NHS now worries that it might be weeks away from scenes similar to those in LA County, Southern California, last week. Southern California hospitals are so full that some of the sickest patients can't even get here. That edict came down this week, basically directing ambulance crews to not take patients who they deem to be most likely not to survive to hospitals. Hospitals have declared an internal disaster, meaning ambulances are being turned away. I mean, it, it is it's difficult to, to talk about. It's difficult to think about. In Cambridge, A&D consultant Dr Adrian Boyle says there's an eerie calm before the storm. So A&E is in a funny place. I'm hearing that there are some A&E departments who are seeing lots and lots of very sick patients. We are probably going through the same thing that we went in the first lockdown, where the numbers suddenly drop. We worry a bit about the missing patients, people who may be having symptoms of a stroke or a heart attack. The NHS regularly gets overwhelmed. If you work in emergency departments, you know that feeling of being overwhelmed quite regularly. This is different because this is on an order of magnitude worse. It hasn't escaped doctors' notice that much of the pressure they're working under is the result of delayed decisions at the top of government. People were anxious about this in early December and I just it feels like we were doing... It just all feels a bit late. The NHS has had all of its resilience removed. It's been stripped back and stripped back and stripped back to the point where something like this coming along was always going to cause this much damage. And they were warned and they chose not to listen. So I think there's a sense of chronic frustration on top of the acute frustration at their inability to make a, a decision and to get it right first time. What are people predicting over the next few weeks? So there's been some leaks of internal NHS data to the Health Service Journal, which talk about London hospitals by January 19th running out of beds, running out of general beds, running out of intensive care beds, even the best case scenarios being around 2,000 beds short. We're still in the thick of the second wave and I'm waiting for the third to hit. It's nine o'clock on Saturday night, and Dr Christine Watson is speaking to us from one of the largest hospitals in the UK at the end of a 12-hour shift. I'm an intensive care consultant at Nottingham University Hospitals. I'm one of the clinical leads for the intensive care unit here. She thinks the East Midlands could be a couple of weeks behind London, and she's alarmed 
by what we're seeing of the third wave. For the first time, seeing what's happening in London, I felt genuine fear for what the next few weeks might bring. My big fear is we will be so busy across the country that if one, God forbid, goes out and has a car crash and needs ICU care as a consequence of having a car crash, that we will struggle to find the capacity to do that as well. For me in particular, I think there's the kind of combined pressure of a sustained management response as well. So where do I need to set up the next beds? How many more staff do I need to redeploy from other areas to staff those beds? And then the kind of moral burden, moral injury, I suppose, of knowing that in order to redeploy those staff, that will mean that another theatre list comes down and another patient may not get their operation. And that's quite hard. What sort of options are there on the table for, for the NHS to be able to mitigate the effects of, of what's coming? So most operations that we, we'd call elective operations, planned operations in London, have now been cancelled. Some cancer operations ha- have also been postponed, even quite urgent ones. Really? There are obviously profound ethical issues with that, but it, it does postpone that moment where you go over bed capacity. The Nightingales might play a role. They're open in Essex, in Manchester. London will start taking patients again soon although that is subject to having the the staff to look after them. The other kind of light at the end of the tunnel is that we are now getting better treatments. We just had the the discovery of two new anti-inflammatory drugs, which are going to be rolled out in the NHS straight away. And when given to patients, it looks like they can cut the length of hospital stay by 10 days and, and boost their chance of survival. In the first wave of the pandemic, the challenge for NHS staff was to learn about a novel and unpredictable disease. But as the third wave approaches, things are very different. Are more people surviving now? Yes. Yeah, yeah. The shifts early on were were terrifying because we didn't know what worked and what, what we could do to help these patients. Recently, at least, even when the shifts are busy... Even when the patients are piling in, we know what we can do to help. We know that steroids work in some patients. One in eight patients who need oxygen who get steroids will survive when they would otherwise have died. There are things that we can do that give us at least a sense that we're helping. That's a huge step forward from where we were last year. It's not just about death. The long COVID syndrome of fatigue and brain fog is utterly life-destroying in itself. So you can survive COVID on paper, but it's not necessarily survival that people would choose. Are you seeing people who are having it twice? COVID, yes. Yeah, we've, we've got staff members going off who had positive antibodies last year and are now testing positive again. I haven't met any patients that have had it twice, to my knowledge. But then again, we don't know who had it first time around because the testing was so mm. um, sort of scattergun and messy, we, we can't be sure. Although there are still some unanswered questions about COVID, the main challenge for doctors now is battling against the unrelenting pressure of day-to-day shifts. 
every doctor we spoke to told us they suffer with chronic sleeplessness, their responsibilities weighing on them, and memories of tough shifts playing back again and again on repeat. It's so hard to choose. It's so hard to choose which one is the worst, because I just have so many. I think it's the emotional bit that's the most difficult. It's when we call families and say your family member is not doing too well and they might not survive. And I hate saying these things over telephone. And, you know, when they break into tears on the other side, it's so hard holding back your own. And I was just told that when COVID patients pass away, you can't see your family member the one last time. Wow. And I found that absolutely, like, very difficult. It was heartbreaking. So you're the last to see them, really? Yes, sometimes. How often, you know, during the course of a week, how often are you having to have those conversations with relatives at the moment? Oh, like... Every day. Every day. Have you lost any friends or colleagues to COVID yourself? We have lost colleagues. We have lost colleagues, yes. All of this sounds like an extraordinary strain and something that you're coming across on a daily basis. What sort of psychological toll has this taken? I mean, right now we're all on autopilot. We don't have the time to express that grief. I have to go see the other patient and the next and the next. So it hasn't settled in yet. Maybe when the storm has passed, maybe that's when we'll find out how much it has affected all of us. Is there any help? Is there any support for people like you who, who are experiencing so much and very suddenly? You know, is there anyone you can talk to? I'm sure there is. We're just in this eat, sleep, work cycle. We don't have time to think about things like mental health. We need to help all these patients that come through our doors. I mean, they're looking at us and we have a responsibility. I mean, you're working again tonight and you'll actually be going off to your shift in about an hour. Mm -hmm. Thank you again for talking to us now. How do you prepare? How do you prepare to go in for another shift of that? It's always been a challenge to sleep during the day to be able to prepare for your night shift. But now, coupled with the memories of the events of the last shift, it's even harder to fall asleep. It's harder to switch off your brain from what you've just experienced, what you've just seen. And then there is the news every day that where you find out how many people are infected and how many people have lost their lives. And how about when you get home you know, very early in the morning? What do you do? You know, you, you talked about the images you've just processed, you've just seen, and the things you've just experienced. What's your routine? When we get back in, in the morning, the first thing we want to do is take a shower because we're so scared. What if the virus is clinging on to something? We want to scrub it all off and then head straight to bed. Sometimes I've just taken two paracetamols to get rid of this body ache because of all the running around so that I can, you know, just drift off to sleep painlessly.
In just a moment, we'll look at the impact of COVID conspiracy theories on NHS frontline workers. And could Britain's doctors be at a personal breaking point? Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and get one month free. Search for thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. For the medics on the front line who've been there throughout, you know, barely got over crisis in in spring and and it seems to be back with a vengeance is there a real risk that you know some of these members of staff could reach sort of a personal breaking point you know the nhs is obviously wrestling with something similar but just on a personal basis are they all coping you know we saw in the first wave that some intensive care nurses a lot of them who didn't have any mental health problems before have developed quite severe mental health problems you know in, in at least one case being sectioned under the Mental Health Act because of what they saw, because of the pressures that they were under. Wow. And so I think there always has to be that concern that we might see that in, in a more widespread way. You know, I'm, I'm not seeing people kind of suddenly breaking down in tears, but this cumulative effect is going to, I think, cause a lot of burnout and a lot of stress. And I think we'll probably see quite high resignation and, and staff quitting rates in the not so distant future once things settle down a bit and and we're through this major crisis. There is an element of having to not detach yourself because that's not the right word, but you cannot feel the emotions of of every patient and every relative because if you did, you would never ever be able to come to work and do the job. There are definitely some cases which do stop you in our tracks more than others. But for me, that's just reassuring that I have not let myself become too compartmentalised. I've not shut myself away from those emotions too severely. Compared to the first wave, where there was an awful lot of uncertainty, an awful lot of fear, but a sense of real camaraderie and positivity, and we're all in this together and we'll get through it. 
as the months have gone on, you know, the, the phrase that I hear a lot is, I just don't feel like I can do this anymore. The thing that's really been very hard this time around is the COVID denial. Just over a week ago, COVID-19 conspiracy theorists were removed by security from Colchester Hospital. They'd been wandering the corridors, trying to prove it was empty and that the pandemic was a hoax. It prompted an angry rebuke from the head of NHS England. When people say that, it is a lie. You are not only responsible for potentially uh, changing behaviour that will kill people, but it is an insult. There is nothing more demoralising than having that kind of nonsense spouted when it is most obviously untrue. What has been quite difficult for some staff is they've actually had protests outside their hospitals, you know, people holding signs and shouting that that hospital is empty, there's nothing going on. I mean, that must be so hard to deal with while you're in there trying to care for patients. And it sort of undermines their account of what's happening to them, sort of makes them out to be lying. Well, absolutely. As opposed to last time when we were applauded as heroes, now we do receive messages that say that we're lying. It's very painful, really, because, I mean, what we see in the wards, there are no words to explain what we experience on a daily basis. And when we hear these conspiracy theories, um, it, it just really breaks our heart. If you could show them anything from your daily life, from, from the shifts you do, what would you want them to see? What would you want them to appreciate? I'd wanted them to see all the patients that we have that look like our family members. I would really want them to experience what it's like to see people that resemble people you love suffering this way. Maybe then they'd understand the magnitude. Will life get easier for them when they are all vaccinated? Because at the moment, I suppose that, you know, they're facing incredible risks every day too. Yes, I think the vaccination programme is being seen as a real light at the end of the tunnel. Everybody wants to be vaccinated like yesterday. And it just can't come soon enough. A&E consultant Dr Adrian Boyle got some particularly good news last month after he'd taken part in the Oxford vaccine clinical trial. I signed myself up to be in the trial back in May. So I got it. I got the vaccine. So I, I feel enormously privileged. I, I found it just before Christmas. And I think that was the best Christmas present I could have ever had. It's like finding out whether you've won the lottery. It was very exciting. Is there anything else that you think people who are listening need to be told, need to know? We've had some patients in their 20s, both in the last wave and in this wave. We are seeing more patients in that younger age group between 20 and 50, not necessarily with significant underlying health problems. Just because one is young does not mean that you are immune. For Dr Hussein, the UK will have a debt of gratitude to pay. Last month, the French government gave immigrant healthcare professionals fast-track citizenship in recognition of their service. Campaigners are asking the British government to do the same. 30% of the NHS healthcare workers were born overseas. 
a good proportion of these people have their families living in different continents they've not been able to visit their families yet they have worked day in and day out for the nhs i think there is no better portrayal of loyalty than this nhs healthcare workers have a lot of things to worry about and immigration issues should definitely not be one and for the south london respiratory consultant the greatest gift the public could give doctors is to take the virus seriously again. People need to understand that the new variant was an inevitable product of what was happening in this country. You won't get a, a New Zealand variant strain, you won't get a Taiwanese variant strain. You'll get strains in countries where you have lots of infections flying around. I, I can't quite explain enough that in two weeks' time you might break your leg and turn up to an NHS hospital and there'll be no way that we can help you. What people have to realise is that the only way to control this is to do it properly. 24-7, as if you have the virus yourself and you don't want to pass it on, it's the only way. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, health editor of The Times, Kat Lay, in London, an anonymous respiratory consultant, and junior doctor Pushpo Babul Hussain. In Nottingham, intensive care consultant Dr Christine Watson and in Cambridge, Dr Adrian Boyle from the Royal College of Emergency Medicine. You can keep up with all of Catley's reporting at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producer today was James Shield. The executive producer is Poppy Damon and sound design was by Nicola Rawfast. If you'd like to get in touch about anything you've just heard, or any stories that you think we should be covering, please do email us at storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you tomorrow. Subscribe today and get one month free at thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.